Hello everyone and welcome to our final episode in the three-part series on the films of Damien Chazelle. We have been reading all of the screenplays involved in his three big productions, from Whiplash to La La Land and now finally First Man. As usual, we'll be discussing the full scope of the story from beginning to end, so if you haven't seen the film and you don't want any spoilers, you might already know how it ends, seeing as it concerns the 1969 moon landing, which is one of the most famous events in history, but maybe you don't know and you don't want to find out, so feel free to watch the film first and come back to us when you're ready. Our show is aimed at story lovers and storytellers, so maybe you're listening because you actually want to write screenplays yourself or do write screenplays. Maybe you are listening because you just love to hear the backstory to your favorite films. But hopefully we're providing something that you find useful and valuable, and we really appreciate your support in listening to the show. So without further ado, we'll get straight into the episode. First Man. Hello and welcome to the 21st Rewrite, the podcast about screenplays and the process of writing them. I'm William Coldwell, and I'm joined, as always, by my good friend and co-host, Alan Vasquez. Hi, everybody, and today we are going to be discussing First Man, which is our third episode in our series of Damien Chazelle films, directed by Damien Chazelle, screenplay by Josh Singer, and it is based on the book by James R. Hansen. Uh, we have Ryan Gosling portraying Neil Armstrong and Claire Foy portraying Janet Armstrong, which are our two lead characters. I thoroughly enjoyed the film. And it's not what I expected in a way. I think it's a, uh, we'll get more into it as we talk about it, but I think it subverted not only my expectations, but a lot of people's expectations in terms of how it would approach the first man landing on the moon, which is such a global accomplishment, but the way it's portrayed is very intimate and very sort of small in a way. Yeah, the, the moon landing itself has got tied up with notions of nationalism in America mm -hmm. or patriotism mm -hmm. as it, it was considered an American project. And that's why it got this backlash, I suppose, of yeah. people who thought it wasn't patriotic enough. Mm -hmm. But in a way, it transcends that because it goes down to the human level of what it was like for Neil Armstrong, not even just the whole group of astronauts, really. It's really about Neil's actual story as an individual. And it's based on this book, First Man by James Hansen. You've read the book as well. And Correct, yeah. This is an enormous tome of a yes, book. Yes, it was. It's probably the longest non-fiction book I've ever read. Yeah, it's, it's really long. It's absolutely enormous. And the version they released to tie in, well, he re-released it before the film came out and cut it down by about 150 pages. So mm -hmm. his original manuscript is even longer. Right, yeah. It's a very long book, and it goes into a lot of details yeah. in his early life, and especially kind of gearing up to the moon landing and that whole experience at NASA. I think having read the book and then watching the film, everything felt very appropriate to me. Mm -hmm. It felt like it captured sort of his essence, his way of being, his personality, his outlook on what was happening. His perspective on the moon landing itself, I think, is reflected in the way the filmmakers were able to approach the material. Because instead of going towards 
a sort of big spectacle and making it very sensationalized. They actually approached it in a very, uh, like I was saying before, it's very intimate and it's really about Neil and it's really about Neil and his wife and that whole relationship and how it's kind of balanced between being at the space station and being at their kitchen. Like, I think they both have the same amount of screen time. And that's honestly, that that is who he was. You know, that it was the reality of it. And when, you know, you don't have to read the whole book because it is a very long book. But Yeah, we've, we've done the hard work, so yeah. other people won't have to, hopefully. And Yeah, but, but, but I am happy to say that there, it really felt like I was watching the book I had read about. Mm-hmm. Very much so. I suppose my only complaint if it if it is a complaint it's just that it's not the kind of book i would tend to read myself mm-hmm. it's it's very meticulously written and it's one of those books that is really aimed at the military enthusiast there's mm-hmm. so many pages of details about mm-hmm. the kind of aircraft carrier he's on or the kind of all of the technology in the plane or what he's there's so many numbers and figures mm-hmm. and it's just stuff that if you're not really familiar with airspace technology and all this kind of stuff, it, it can get you can get lost really quickly. And yet the chapter on Karen, for example, is very short. It's it's something like twenty, right. thirty pages or something right. like that. It's it's a really short chapter. This makes it a really interesting one to consider in terms of adapting it into a screenplay mm-hmm. because we can see how uh, Josh Singer actually managed to pick out the pieces that were really, really important from that huge book, mm-hmm. yeah. which is about 700. The version he was using is the full 700-page version. And right. he was able to extract exactly what it is that that matters and what really defined Neil as a person. And as we go through the screenplay and the story, one of the things I think that really stands out is how he managed to get the dialogue to really emulate Neil's voice and his way of expressing things. Mm-hmm. And then you watch an interview with the real Neil Armstrong. Those are the words he would use. Those are the words he would pick mm-hmm. in that situation. So we can bring up certain things that we got from the book. Right. Like I said, a lot of it for me is is kind of a blur. But in particular, the chapters on the moon landing itself really stand out. And it's a phenomenal right. piece of research. Yeah, it's really interesting because, yeah. you know, I'm very new to all of that. I, I, I pretty much just knew the basics of the whole moon landing and the, the exploration and the journey to get there. I'd, so to have like an in-depth sort of look or read into it was very interesting. And I guess they could have approached it in a bunch of different ways. I mean, you have his whole life there. You could have, mm-hmm. you know, he's an old man reflecting back. You know, there, there's so many different things because... Obviously, his life didn't just end after he landed on the moon. There's a whole bunch of stuff that he did afterwards that I was very entertained by just reading it. Uh, you know, his marriage dissolving and, and all this stuff. Like, there's a lot of material there. But they decided to focus on, obviously, the moon landing, which is kind of a no-brainer. But it was a very smartly written script. And the fact that by the time that you're ending Act 1, it's all about getting to the moon. So they kind of waste no time to get there. Yeah, and it doesn't go into too much mythology. And mm-hmm. that was something that was brought up in the book, is the number of people who would claim to have known Neil as a child and 
somehow predicted that he was destined to go to the moon. Yes. This kind of mythology that arose around right. him, especially in his, his small town in, in Ohio. And the screenplay doesn't mess around with that. Mm. It doesn't mess around with rumors. And Josh Singer said in particular about the the key scene towards the end with the bracelet, mm. that that is something that is a rumor, but he had spoken to James Hansen about it and Hansen thought Neil was lying to him in saying he didn't take anything to the moon. Mm. He thought that this was part of Neil's defensive posture, his yeah. his secretive manner. He he's yeah. a really interesting character in that sense, in that he he obviously had a very deep and troubled inner world that he tried to disguise to the outer world. Yeah, he was a very private man, which is kind of a it could be a bit of a problem if you're trying to do a biopic. You know, you compare him to Steve Jobs. There's so much entertainment mm -hmm. and so much material there that you can dramatize. But when you're approaching a character with the personality of Neo. Yeah, who barely talks. Who barely yeah. says anything, barely connects with the people around him. And he's, he's, you know, he's very meticulous about his work. And that's pretty much it. Like, that's kind of his focus. So it can only sort of disappoint people that were kind of expecting something from someone who's considered this icon, this hero, this American treasure, and it's Neil. You know, it's like this normal person. He never saw himself as an icon or anything like that. I think that kind of spoke to the type of person he was. And to make a film as impactful as this, I can only see sort of what the challenges were. Because we never get to explore the moon landing through the lens of the people. Never. We never cut to thousands of people, millions of people watching the TV or, you know, there was some of that in the earlier drafts. It's, it's interesting, the, yeah. um, the launch at Cape Kennedy. Mm -hmm. It's actually the first chapter or the prologue to the, to the book. And the book really starts out by saying just how much of a worldwide phenomenon this was and how many people had traveled down to Florida to watch it. Mm. And then we get on the screen. It's, it's such a solitary journey. We just focus on the Saturn V rocket and we don't see anyone on the ground. Mm. We don't even see Janet's reaction as the, as the yeah. um, rocket is going up. In total parallel to what we always think of, which is it mm. being this worldwide televised phenomenon yeah. that everyone was paying attention to. Yeah, and I think that's probably part of the backlash, I think. It's that people expected a certain type of film. You know, they were maybe expecting something like Armageddon or Apollo mm -hmm. 13, you know, uh, very sensationalized, and it wasn't that. And I think part of the controversy was that they didn't show the American flag being planted. But that would have felt a little bit off. I mean, even if they did have it, no problem. But not having it there makes sense to me because it never is about that. It wasn't. So in the earlier draft, there was a 145-page draft before the one that was the official one. And the way that script starts, it starts with a bunch of NASA members talking about how they're going to get to the moon because the Russians just had the first person uh, in space, mm -hmm. essentially. So they were going to try to compete with that. So there was all this talking. Neil's not in the first two pages. So it's all about this as the credits are kind of uh, running through. That's sort of what the script said. And then it cuts to what is now the official beginning of the film. 
And I, I, I can only imagine it was because they decided to just focus on the man rather than the perspective of not even the space station or, or what the people's journey was in that, in that decade. It, it was just about Neil. I mean, it is called First Man. So it makes sense for them to just focus on this person's perspective. I do feel there are parallels with the film Steve Jobs, which we mm-hmm. looked at the screenplay of in the first episode we did of the podcast. In particular, that's because it took this large biography and then narrowed it down into specific episodes mm-hmm. in Steve Jobs' life. That screenplay itself is more dramatized and is largely fictional and carries that sense of, we'll tell you what happened through some scenes that explain something like what happened. Whereas Mm. First Man really focuses on its authenticity. Mm -hmm. And that is something that began with the screenplay, and then Damien Chazelle implemented that in his filming techniques as well, Mm -hmm. in trying to find ways to immerse the actors and then immerse us as a result in Mm -hmm. the story. And so much of it feels so intimate. We're in We're in close quarters with the family, with the kids, with Neil at home, with the other astronauts Mm -hmm. at their dinners and, you know, the the private moments that they have. Mm -hmm. And so that all really combines into this this screenplay, which essentially is narrowed down to 1961 up until 1969. Mm -hmm. And that's quite close to what Aaron Sorkin did with uh, Steve Jobs. Uh, yeah, he served from 84 to like 98, something yeah, like that. 15, uh, yeah, 15, 14 years for him. Just like a chunk of yeah. their of their time. And and there's none of this Neil as a child dreaming of going to the moon or any oh of this God, stuff. Oh, God, that know? would have been so yeah. cliche. That would have been terrible. Yes, mm-hmm. thank God there isn't there isn't that. And, and, and in a way, the film kind of has like this sort of detached feeling to it almost. I don't even know how to articulate it. It's nothing uh, scientific. It's just a feeling I had even though there's these wonderful intimate moments and emotional moments as well, uh, it it always kind of feels slightly detached. And I mm-hmm. think the reason why is because Neil was like that. So I feel like the film in its form was kind of a reflection of who he was. This is to do with the visual aspect of it, mm-hmm. what Damien brought to make it feel intimate, claustrophobic, to make it feel isolated, to make it feel distant. Yeah, I completely agree with you on that mm-hmm. point. What I would also add into it is that I feel that the world that we're drawn into, we also feel detached because it's a world that it's real, but it's no more. We start to realize the vast distance between us and the 60s Mm. because this isn't a idealized version of the 60s. This is a normal place. It's a normal home. It's Texas and... Mm-hmm. California and Florida in this time period. Mm-hmm. And we start to feel almost like we're unfamiliar with it, even though it seems so authentic at the same time. Mm-hmm. It's certainly based in the world we know we inhabit. And then we realize we've moved on so much from that world in just such a short space of time. Yeah. And the fact that there is no space program anymore, really, like, mm-hmm. you know, it kind of dawned on me like, wow, we haven't gone back to the moon it's kind of sad in a way and i think that adds to it it's like once upon a time when we had dreams of going to the moon and then we just stopped there Mm -hmm. you know it was just uh 
a moment in time. And I think, yeah, you're right. That kind of lends to that detachment, to that faraway nostalgia that me and you didn't get to live, obviously, but we have some idea. So let's get into the meat of the story. We start, as you were mentioning, in 1961 with Neil's solo flight in the X-15. Right. So this is a flight up to the edge of the atmosphere, to go beyond mm. the atmosphere of Earth, which, as Neil points out himself at one point in the film, is a remarkable achievement considering man had only figured out how to fly something like 60 years before yeah. this moment. Yeah, and yeah, so yeah. he is one of the first people to be doing this. Right. Uh, there had been others who had done it before him, but he's testing this particular plane, the X-15. Mm-hmm. And what they do with the screenplay. So they have the guys in the control room yeah. talking to Neil and he responds to them in mm. the screenplay. But when you watch the final film version, he's he's very silent throughout. And that makes you feel disconnected from the safety element mm. immediately. He, You see the, the simplicity of the technology that he's using mm. and then realizing that anything can go wrong and the way down is so, so far mm-hmm. and gravity is going to be a major concern. And so he's, we're brought into this world where there's genuine danger for pilots. Yeah. And it's almost like a war situation just without an enemy. to The enemy to fight is, is just human achievement. It's just what are the limits of what we can do. Yeah, just the elements themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. But, but then... There's genuine danger there. He could right. genuinely die in on this mission. Yeah, and I think it's um, reading the script, like you were saying, it, it, if if you don't know anything about the science behind this, then you you can easily get lost in the book. And in the script, they did a good job at sort of keeping that to a minimum. But when you're reading the script, it does feel a little like, oh, they're talking a lot of words that I don't know and numbers, and I think they're in trouble. There's a lot of that, but thankfully it's a visual medium. And... Uh, once the music is there and everything's put together, then you're kind of in that suspenseful moment. And it's a great way to kind of introduce Neil as a person because you have this crazy thing happening in front of you, this sort of action sequence. And like you said, he's just silent. And then at the very end when he comes out, there's this sort of nonchalant way that he carries himself. Like there's not a lot of enthusiasm there. There's not a lot of sort of fist-pumping moment. You know, it's just kind of like, oh, yeah, we did that. Yeah. And that's a great way of sort of uh, establishing his character, his personality. Sometimes he gives off the sense that he was just doing his duty or just doing his job. More light is shed on that by reading the biography and learning that he loved to fly when he was a youth and Mm -hmm. he was he saved up to do flying lessons and he was one of the youngest pilots to graduate from the flight school and then he went to Korea and he was a a pilot in the US Navy Mm -hmm. and there was so much uh, flight experience all leading up to this and the fact he went to college to to learn advanced engineering and this guy did lots of work to get where he was the these astronauts weren't selected because they were in superior fitness to other people Mm-hmm. It was mental resilience and mm-hmm. knowledge of actually being yeah. up in the cockpit of a plane and stuff like that that they were selected as 
as individuals that could be considered to do these these missions. Definitely, yeah. He was a very smart guy. And I think, it, like you say, it wasn't like a popular competition. They really looked at the smartest people in the room, the ones that they thought, not just the smartest, but the ones that could be able to handle the, the, the pressure or the stress of the job. Mm-hmm. And, and we see in that first scene that Neil notes stuff down in his notebook while he's while he's flying. Yeah. So there's that sense that he's always recording, he's always taking notes, he's always figuring out what's going on and and mathematically analyzing that and figuring out statistics and yeah. and knowing what he's doing and it that's an interesting part of his character because once we get out of that first opening scene we see his home life and he's doing a similar thing with Karen. Mm. He's got his infant daughter who has cancer and he's taking meticulous notes about every single time she goes to radiation right. therapy right. and everything like that. He's kind of a computer in mm-hmm. a way. Yeah. He, he's sort of devoid of a lot of emotion. I think he, the way his mind kind of works, which is kind of a common thing for a lot of geniuses, a lot of people that stature is that they're sort of very calculative in the way they, they think. And it, it's not so attached to emotion in any way. But obviously, nice segue there into his home life. Now we see his relationship with his daughter. And I think she was two when she when That's she died. Right, yeah. And uh, I mean, it could only be so devastating. You know, I can only imagine that devastation. And I can only imagine it not having some sort of effect on him. I think that probably um, influenced his personality even further. If he was already kind of a bit detached and a little bit quiet or introverted, I think that probably made him even more so, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so as screenwriters, we're interested in looking at what drives characters, what motivates them, their needs and their wants. Right. Big elements of every Mm -hmm. screenplay. This is such a fascinating screenplay simply because our main character has a want that is completely impossible and from the very beginning. Mm. What he really wants more than anything is to have his daughter back. And within the first few scenes, we watch her sickness and then her funeral. Mm-hmm. And this will follow our character of Neil right up until the end of the film. Mm-hmm. That the one thing he wants isn't really to be the first man on the moon or to be celebrated around the world as, as some sort of hero. It's that he wants to overcome this loss. And it's made even harder by the fact that he and Janet struggle to communicate about this. They're also living at a time where there are more traditional marriage marriage roles and there is a sense that his wife can't get much out of him. She can't pry mm. it out of him. She can't force him to open up and talk. Right. And it would be considered weak for him to go to a therapist or any, you know, he's meant to be this Navy guy. He's going to be an astronaut. There's yeah. no, there's no sense that he can, he feels that he can open up about this. And it's not in the, in the film or the script, but in the book, there is um, a lot of mention that the people around him at work weren't even aware that he had lost a daughter. He never mm-hmm. brought it up. He never took time off. He just kept being him. You know, he never externalized whatever he was going through. 
if he was going through that despair or anything like that. He was just all to himself. He was that type of person. Yeah, and so when these scenes kind of go past a little bit fast, but we get a really strong emotional sense of the importance and significance yeah. of, of the events that we see. I was a little surprised they didn't linger on her too much. Uh, I remember thinking that. I'm like, oh, she's dead already. Mm. I already knew she was going to die because I had read the, the biography. So I was, I, was, I was surprised it didn't develop the relationship between Neil and his daughter, Karen, more. Because mm -hmm. I feel like if this is going to be a, an emotional center for the film you know we would need to see them spending more time together in order for that but what they do was brilliant because you get just enough mm -hmm. for you to she's uh, taken too soon literally for us as an audience yeah. and for him so exactly we we experience that flash of uh -huh. seeing his happiness for a brief moment and then see it taken away from him and then seeing it haunt him for the mm -hmm. rest of the film like her presence comes back into the film and we experience that through him. He will see a, a swing set or talk of a swing set or he'll see a girl that kind of looks like her or something. But you, you get that vibe. Her presence is there in the entire film. When we go back to seeing him in his, his career and he's returned to his office and he finds out he's grounded from, mm -hmm. from the test flights, clearly some of the guys in the office know what had happened but yeah. the, the main concern is that there was this this problem in the one test flight that we see mm -hmm. he's going to be grounded but then the call to action appears to him there's the newspaper mm -hmm. suggesting that nasa is hiring the next round of astronauts the book almost glosses over that moment and it it makes it seem like he was built for the job in a way and when you do look at his, mm. when you see his resume, literally, he was built for that job. Mm -hmm. He had every single bit of experience that NASA could have asked for. Mm -hmm. The engineering degree, as well as all of the flight experience and having served in the Navy, it was just... Yeah, no, he was the perfect package for He was perfect for, for them. Yeah, yeah definitely. And uh, Hansen really emphasizes how many of these guys were Navy, which is something that I wasn't aware of. Mm. We would naturally think it might be people from the Air Force. And strangely, it's the U.S. Navy that was really filtering through the vast majority of astronauts. Yeah. So, uh, you know, we start getting to we start meeting a lot of people really fast once, you know, the whole journey to the moon type of thing happens or at least him um, getting an interview. So the first person we meet is Elliot and we instantly see sort of a, a small kind of connection there. Which is kind of nice because we don't really we haven't seen Neil up to that point kind of interact with anybody except his wife and his kids. In the original script, they go through a whole series of exams. So they go through an isolation room. They go through a whole bunch of different things. And I don't know if this was filmed or not, but it was. Yeah, it, it's alluded to in the in the shooting script. Okay, that they'd had yeah. the ice bucket or the the ice pool right and that's in their conversation yeah. outside which i think it's kind of nice you know i don't think we really needed to see all of that and mm -hmm. that just kind of again for screenwriting purposes less is more and and also it probably saves you on budget you don't have to go and shoot all these things yeah. and, and you can spend that money somewhere else 
that's a good example of cutting a whole bunch of fat that didn't really need to be there. Yeah, it's it's really the interview scene that yes that sets up what the stakes are here because mm-hmm. we've got these guys at NASA who are interviewing him, and they want to know why they should select him. And I think that was the first point where I, having read the biography and having listened to interviews with Neil Armstrong, I realized that Singer had completely captured his voice when he gives that speech where he says, when you're down here in the crowd and you look up, and Armstrong always uses the word you. I don't know if you've noticed this, but he never Mm. says I, and that's also part of that not revealing his feelings thing. Mm. He never says I feel this way or when I go into the spaceship or when I look at them. He always says, when you do this, Mm -hmm. as if it was an everyday event, as if it happened to everybody. Mm -hmm. And yet he's doing this thing that really was unique. (laughs) It happened to nobody else being the first man on the moon. But at that interview at at Ellington, one of the guys does bring up, do you think that your daughter's death will have an an impact on, on... on your career and he says it would be unreasonable to assume it wouldn't and Mm. that seems to be the answer that they're okay with that right they they see that he he's moved forward and he's he's still got his head on him and he's he's doing well so yeah i mean he he demonstrates that he can articulate whatever he needs to communicate without having to attach any sort of extraneous emotion to it which is kind of what they need in that environment which is to just get the job done with the less fuss as possible and that's pretty much who neil was there was no fuss around him really Mm -hmm. you know he was just straightforward this is what i'm doing and even in a in a comment like that where it's kind of alluding to a sort of trauma that he might have gone through or is going through he's still very nonchalant no fuss this is stating the facts and i think that's kind of what they were looking for so yeah that makes sense yeah if the if the screenplay had offered us more of a parallel between buzz and neil i would have loved to have seen what buzz had said at that interview i (laughs) i had yes because buzz was such a character in the biography and he is in real life and yeah exactly they're total opposites like you could almost make like a buddy cop vibe movie to to this whole mm-hmm. thing but obviously that's not the direction that went to buzz is obviously in the film yeah part of me kind of wanted to see a little bit more uh time between the two of them because they were so different so the screenplay moves on to mm-hmm. houston and moves forward just a year to 1962 and we also get introduced to ed white and his wife pat yeah and his well his whole family he's got little eddie as his son as well and they live across the street. There's obviously a sense that all these astronauts are living in the same neighborhood mm-hmm. near to the uh, space center where they're, they're going to be training and learning right. and working every single day. Uh, but Ed is obviously the most significant character, I'd say, aside from Neil and Janet. Mm-hmm. And his story is, is quite a tragic one, as, as mm-hmm. we see it, it unfold throughout the screenplay. However... In the early part, he's he's just a neighbor, and he's also someone who's who's doing the same thing as Neil. So they're able to form a bond. Pat and Janet are able to form a bond and kind of rely on each other as neighbors as well. Yeah, they want to arrange to to get their kids together, that kind of thing. So yeah, that's kind of a nice side note 
in the early part of the screenplay to introduce those two characters and get us familiarized with them. I think it's a great setup to kind of humanize um, the journey as well and to kind of put put it into perspective just what these families were kind of experiencing. And then obviously when things take a turn later on in the script, you're invested in these characters because you see how normal they are, how every day their their lives are, especially the wives. They're just trying to raise a family. And there's a lot of good dialogue between the wives, I think, and sort of their perspective. I especially like the the scene where I think it's Janet talking to Pat. I picked Neil because I wanted a normal life, you know, because that he was so different from everybody else and it turned everything but so it just kind of brings their perspective into place because they never asked for any of it really or at least it didn't anticipate what it would mean mm-hmm. and i think that's good in the creator in the writing process because you're kind of setting up a sort of picture of harmony or sort of what their everyday life is and then later on that kind of becomes more and more shattered which raises the stakes so by the time that Neil is in that spaceship towards the moon, even though we know he does what he does, um, there is still that sense of of the stakes are really, really high. Yeah, and Neil without Janet would be directionless in a way. She's mm-hmm. she's the one who gets him to see what he's doing, how his actions affect other people, especially his his two sons, because he is still a father and he still has two kids to raise no matter what happened with Karen. There's this lovely quote from the actual screenplay itself on on page 21 when they've just moved into the neighborhood. Janet looks past Pat, spots a man tossing a ball with his son. We recognize Ed White. Janet watches for a moment, maybe a tinge of sadness at how far away that kind of normalcy seems. Mm. So... On, in their inner world, they're still struggling with this, this loss of their daughter. And just looking at the neighbors across the street and feeling that, oh, their lives are normal, but, but our lives aren't. Our lives are fractured in some way. Right. However, the stakes are significant for all of the families there because there's always this chance that something could go wrong on any of the missions. Well, we get to see a little bit of the training as well. The multi-axis trainer where Neil is... And all of the other astronauts are being spun around at yeah. ridiculous speeds to see. Yeah. And it's very interesting how when he passes out, we he kind of transfers his consciousness over to his happy place, which is where Karen is still around. And he returns to this very domestic world when he gets knocked out into this unconscious state, mm. which is interesting. I, I like how uh, Singer included those details. Mm-hmm. And it keeps reminding us as an audience of of what's going on inside as well. Yeah, and and it's it's built out of like an organic place. You know, it's an action reaction. Uh, not we're in this sort of simulation. We're still in the story of you know journey to the moon, and in that moment, because uh, he's knocked out. Now we're seeing a more human element of him. So it, it's very very smartly written in that sense. It doesn't feel imposed. On us, like I feel sometimes films do that, like it'll come out of nowhere. Remember this character, remember this, but it always felt very organic. Mm-hmm. There's a slight mirror, maybe it's meant to be a mirror of him throwing up in the toilet and and that kind of reflecting mm. back onto him caring for Karen as she was throwing up mm. just a couple of scenes before that. But what we discover is this is this is a real turning point for him. 
because when he gets home, he he has found meaning in his life again. He sits down and he tells Janet that he's found something that's really neat, which is that right, yeah. he's going to have to fly in the opposite way, yeah. use the thrust in the opposite way to what he normally would do. And he he said, when you work the math, it's, it's kind of neat. Yeah. And and then it's it's so nice that they you can see them coming together again over I that, love that scene. That he's found yeah, meaning. Because yeah. uh, it's it's very subtle, but you, you definitely get that, like, there's now this sort of bonding or connection again. And you see it through Janet. You know, there's this sort of, um, the way she looks at him, you know, there's like that light back in her eyes type of thing. So, that yeah, that was a very cool scene. I like that a lot. After this point, the, the story jumps forward to 1965. Mm-hmm. So then we have... Neil's kids are growing up a little bit more, three more years, and the space race is heating up as well. Mm-hmm. So the Soviets are advancing in, in their capabilities, and they have dinner at Ed's house. And we can see the bonding, and those mm-hmm. scenes are important for, for creating those connections between the characters. But it's the news that the Soviets have carried out the EVA, the extravehicular activity. So the Soviets had managed to get a cosmonaut, as they called them, mm. astronaut was the, uh, the American word, uh, to actually do a walk outside of a spacecraft. Right. And that was what Ed White was going to be the first to do in the American program. Yeah. So Ed was so excited about having this, this opportunity to do this, this huge historical event. Up until that point, that would have been the most significant thing since Gargarin being the first man in space. And then he's lost his opportunity and he finds out on the news with all of his friends at at home with him. So Mm. he's obviously quite frustrated. Yeah. So again, that kind of, in in a story-wise term, it also kind of ups the stakes for... Mm -hmm. Builds in the competition. Yeah. So now we're we're kind of going a little bit more fast-paced because, again, it sort of organically propels us to the next stage of like, well, now we got to match them or, no, surpass them. So that leads to more of Ed White uh, stuff. I think he kind of becomes a prominent character there towards the middle. Mm -hmm. And I think that was very nicely done because... Um, what it does is it shows sort of Niels, um, who's not a very uh, social person, but nonetheless, you start to see the side of Neil where he begins to show sort of a sense of camaraderie with his fellow potential astronauts. And showing the way he cares or shows his support to him was actually very cool to see. Adding different dimensions to his character, I think, was also the point of these scenes. You get to see the little sides of him. Um, always in a very subdued side, but and that's something that was really great to see uh, Ryan Gosling do is that he could have made that performance kind of boring, you know. But there was always something that was going in his eyes, like even when he wasn't talking and he was just sort of reflecting or just observing or just whatever it was. There was always something going on, and you could sort of feel that. So I thought that was very nicely done. Yeah, he has a magnificent way of kind of projecting out of glazed over eyes something going on within yeah yeah Yeah. so i think that really helped in in telling the story and having us be more immersed into uh his perspective the next few scenes aren't too sign. well the next scene in particular is just an introduction to buzz 
and mm-hmm. we immediately see that there's going to be tension there between mm-hmm. between Neil and Buzz, and he needs no further introduction, really. Everyone knows who Neil Armstrong is by name and who Buzz Aldrin is by name. So, it, so when we hear this is Buzz, we're like, okay, these are the two guys. They're, mm-hmm. they're going to end up in that ship together. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not a spoiler, really, for us. You know, We already know how this is going to turn out. Yeah. yeah. So it, it's interesting to see that tension kind of kick off straight away. And then, obviously, the news comes that Elliot has died in, in a plane crash. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not a test for, for any of the NASA stuff. He, he just dies in a plane crash. Yeah. And at the funeral, Buzz is criticizing the, the landing technique that the guys were making in in uh, foggy conditions. And he just has this, he really sticks out from the group as being way too outspoken, not careful with his words, not paying attention to how other people might be feeling. It's a funeral, that kind of thing. So we immediately see that that's a polar opposite to Neil, who won't even share his feelings when he really is suffering and really could right. use it. And and I think the way kind of Neil responds to him is it very he responds to him, you can tell he's visibly irritated and upset that Buzz is making all these um inappropriate comments, but even then he never loses his cool. The way he kind of re- reiterates or the way he kind of responds to it is in a very sort of again, to the facts when he says, I don't know this word by word, but he says like, well, I wasn't there to see this and I wasn't there to know this so I wouldn't pretend to know what I'm talking about. It's a jab at Buzz, but nonetheless in a very sort of just stating the facts and not really attaching a sort of negative emotion or trying to antagonize Buzz. He's just sort of stating like he always does, which is very remarkable. Like it honestly, he was a man of, you know, a lot of emotional intelligence, I think in that sense maybe maybe not i don't know but in certain situations like that i can't really think of too many people who would approach a comment like that especially if you were connected or you had a relationship with the person that died and someone's making comments like that mm-hmm. you know for someone to keep their cool like that is he definitely speaks up when he feels it's necessary mm-hmm. he seems to consider what he thinks might be the right thing to do. And if he thinks it's the right thing to do, then he'll speak up. Mm -hmm. That's what you said already about Neil Armstrong. There is an admirable side to his character that despite having this huge biography and, and investigation into his life, what James Hansen comes up with is this portrait of a man who really, really tried hard to be decent and noble Mm -hmm. in and that's something that is a very rare quality. It it seems like too much of a burden to take on to try and always be noble at all times. And it's a burden that Neil Armstrong seemed to be carrying mm-hmm. for no one aside from himself, really. Like yeah. he, he definitely had disagreements with his parents, for example. His mother was... Uh, very very religious and and neil didn't identify with that so he it doesn't come across that he was trying to please his parents or or live this way for janet or anything like that or to impress the other astronauts or his kids he just seemed to have this inner conscience at work that allowed him to make decisions and 
continuously make good decisions. And I believe he created a very strong sort of filtered system as to what would come out of him too. Mm-hmm. You know, he he wasn't filtered in the sense of like he was trying to not be truthful, but rather to what is the best way to approach this situation at this moment. It wasn't to be hiding or to be fake, I think. It was um, a very mindful approach to dealing with people, dealing with the people around him. So yeah, yeah, definitely admirable. Yeah, and it it's a nice thing to see that those kind of qualities pay off in the end. Mm-hmm. The the buzzes of the world, at least the way he's portrayed in 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 the screenplay and and in the book as well, that there was a sense that he was throwing his weight around a lot and trying to when he discovered he was potentially going to be yes going to the moon that he really tried to he wanted to be the first one yeah he really tried to to get that written down and get get it assured that he I thought would that be. was going to play a big role mm-hmm. in, the, in the script and yeah in the, the, film. the screenplay downplays that and, yeah. and this is something we can bring in from having read the book that there was there was a genuine debate at nasa over who was going to go out first because the commander was never meant to be the first one to leave the ship so Buzz really wanted this, uh, mm-hmm. even though he later claimed that wasn't true. Mm-hmm. A lot of people that worked with him said it was true. He was really lobbying to be the first person uh, to land on the moon. But I think maybe the thinking behind not having that be in the film is that from Neil's perspective, that wasn't that was that was nothing. Exactly. Like he, that that's why there's a sense of justice in him being selected is because. You give it to the person who hasn't attached anything extra onto this, who yeah. who doesn't gain self worth from this, or or believe that there is any importance to him being selected over anyone else. Being such yeah. a team player that if Neil had been told the day before the moon landing that he was going up in on another mission instead, he would have accepted it with grace. Yeah, definitely. he wouldn't have thrown a fit. He wouldn't have. Right. shouted at anyone yeah. he would have accepted it completely gracefully yeah. and said i guess I w- it wasn't meant to be yeah no definitely and he and he's got and this is his film so obviously this wouldn't be his perspective that it, it wouldn't have played into his consciousness too much if it was happening i don't think he it would have bothered him too much had this been a film about buzz obviously that would be a major plot point in the mm-hmm. film but since it's not it makes sense that it wouldn't be there but that did happen, and it's very prominent in the book. Now we're getting to the midpoint of the story, which is the Gemini 8 mission, which really takes Gemini. up... Gemini. Gemini. Because honestly, I when I heard that in the film, I was like, what the... Gemini. This whole time, I thought Gemini. Like, why would you say Gemini? It's uh, there, There's definitely a uh, Texan... Uh, twang to a lot of the uh, NASA so, yeah. stuff and and that's also in our in our imagination of NASA and the right. Houston we've got a problem that kind of thing there's mm. there's a sense that it needs to be said with a bit of a bit of emphasis a bit of, with a bit of Americanness twang. yeah Gemini um, yeah so they call yeah. it Gemini that's right yeah. within yeah. NASA they're calling it the Gemini 8 program um I'm just using my own accent. Yeah, no, no. The whole time I was reading the biography, it was Gemini in my head. So mm-hmm. when I heard Gemini, I was like, "That's weird." But anyways, yes, but Gemini yeah, the, Eight. It, the, it takes up a huge, yeah. the whole middle part of the screenplay, and 
And the midpoint is, it has many roles in a film. It's mainly the area to play around with the ideas of the story to, mm. to its fullest, but also to maybe find a way to break it into two sections where there's a beginning and an end and this middle point can really stand out and stand on its own. And mm. so the, the Gemini 8 mission works brilliantly because it's way more than the initial X-15 that we get to see at the beginning, but it's nothing like the moon landing either. Mm. It's meant to be this routine practice run, essentially, to see if they can dock these these two, one unmanned and one manned spacecraft together. Right. But obviously, things don't go entirely to plan, as, as we see. Yeah, no, and that was like, uh, so we get a little bit of action here. Mm-hmm. And we, what that does, it, it kind of puts our characters into these very tough situations, and it reveals a lot about them. So obviously, when you're writing a script, putting your characters in challenges is how we get to know them, how they respond to these challenges, how do they transcend these challenges, or do they transcend these challenges? And in particular, we get to see how Janet reacts to what's going on, and we get to see sort of how strong of a character she is. I think it's no secret that she hated how much the press was at her house and how little privacy she had, especially during these years. It's very prevalent in the book, and I think in this particular sequence, we get to see her relationship with NASA. Oh, one of the things I really like about how Josh Singer approached this, he's an, he's an interesting writer. There's definitely a voice to it. Mm-hmm. He's a writer who certainly comes from a highly, I don't know if I should call it privileged or he's a very highly successful person just in general, very well educated. And and you might think that that could also have its, it's got its upsides and its downsides, I believe. You might get different types of tales and different voices from different struggles in life. Mm-hmm. And then you also get this, the research involved in this screenplay is meticulous and it's it's so well done. And you do need a certain type of person to do that. And something we can talk about maybe towards the end is just the merits of trying to write a historical screenplay really based in history and really not wanting to take liberties with the facts. But what you get with Singer's writing style is you have the characters who are talking and their dialogue, which is in the voices of these mainly military, mainly very mathematical guys in the 1960s. And then you have his descriptions of all of the action. And he'll write Jesus at the end of the sentence or like, yeah. like he, he wants you to, yeah. to feel what he's describing in all of the, the action pieces. So mm-hmm. when they're getting into, um, into the, the rocket for Gemini 8, he writes, it's like being buried alive. Worse when we hear the scraping metal of the ratchet that seals the doors. The capsule is now sealed and claustrophobic. Push in on Neil, on his eyes focused, determined. His way of writing in, in the action parts is it's the opposite. It's it's so full of action, life, experience, all this stuff. It just comes out in those scenes. And then you'll have these really mundane pieces of dialogue 
going on around mm. it. And it was the first time I've read a script where I felt that the dialogue wasn't designed most of the time to advance the plot. And the dialogue was really designed for immersion. In, in these scenes in particular, I mean in the, in the spacecraft scenes. Mm. There's so much dialogue that is just there for immersion, just to, like you mentioned earlier, hearing just these strings of numbers and we can't attach meaning on them as an audience because we're unfamiliar with them. Right. So they just serve to immerse us because we believe, well, they know what they're talking about. They know what they're discussing over, yeah. <laughs> over the radio. Yeah. We don't. Yeah, it's all about pacing. It's all about, you know, like he does write like you're in there in the moment and you know you don't know what's about to happen. And he does create this sort of very immersive way of writing that, that feels very tangible. I mean, when you read it. And that's obviously translated into the visual side that Damien Chazelle then brings. But yeah, I, I guess so. I think immersion is the right word for that, you know, because... Mm -hmm. Pacing is good too. I think pacing... It's true that things will surprise us more if there's something mundane happening for a little while beforehand. Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, even even in the dialogue between the quiet moments between Janet and Neil aren't always there to advance a certain plot point. It's just we're just more immersed into their daily life. Mm -hmm. I mean, what plot is there really to advance? They're not having marriage problems that are i mean i'm sure they did in real life but that's not part of the plot there's no drama in that that's being interwoven it's just it's almost contemplative and you are mm -hmm. immersed in the big moments and the small moments i feel which makes those um domestic scenes as well feel more authentic mm -hmm. because not everything is drama there are many moments of of peace and calm and and then there's that sense that we can really feel when things are heating up and mm -hmm. get dragged back into the the tension when it when it does so. And this is the the sequence that does that, because um, up to here, up to this point, we were just sort of in a kind of meditative, contemplative sort of pacing in the film. And I think most of the film is like that up until um, the brilliant last thirty, forty minutes, whatever mm -hmm. it is, when they launch out of Earth. Uh, it is kind of like that. It's very quiet and um, there's not that much seemingly going on in the sense. But that's, I feel like that's who Neil was. You know, I think the way they approach the story themselves, it's the way that he approached the, the entire thing. Some writers include little, little gems for the reader mm. who is actually spending the time to read the screenplay. And Tarantino is famous for this, for, for adding in so much more in mm. his screenplays. Singer seems to do a little bit of it, which is, there are a few nice touches. Um, he mentions during this launch as well that Neil looks out at the window, nothing like the X-15, the world much further below. The chaos down there, it's gone up here. That's something you can't translate into screen, literally. It's, it's a note from the author. To, you have to choose how you're going to to try to portray that or if that's even possible but it right. serves as a nice note to see what what he's thinking about and trying to imagine might be what it's like when you're going up mm -hmm. yeah and, and i think they do that visually very well a lot of the times that we're in these um spacecrafts were kind of always from a pov of neil we're never we don't really see a lot of wide shots or really you know very sort of complicated shots or 
an aesthetic that's very um, glorifying the the whole sequence. It's always kind of you feel claustrophobic and you're kind of just sitting in there with them, which I think was a very good choice because then you're just going through it like they were going through it. You know, I think even well, we'll get to the the moon landing later, but I really like that. You know, they didn't try to glamorize it or trying to show off some really cool visual effects and they could have easily gone down that route and had it been michael bay directing this film we might have got some cool looking stuff you know but that's not what the story is so i'm very glad they went that way yeah one of the things that's that was most praised about this film is that it it makes you really reflect on how rockets are just an assembly of metal sheets and some wires and some yeah and some buttons and some and that's it you there's know. a lot of close-ups yeah. on buttons and stuff and that was one of the things that i actually thought about when watching these sequence i'm like they're like literally just held in space by these like materials mm-hmm. that can easily just sort of come apart um and you're very aware of that when you're watching the film because like and even in the first sequence of the very first sequence of the film there's a lot of close-ups on like you know little stuff inside the aircraft so it's Mm -hmm. stuff that maybe neil would have seen or if you're there flying it that's stuff that's in your attention because that's literally in your space you're sure you're up in space but within your own like immediate space that's all you're seeing that's all that's there Mm -hmm. uh so i i think they did a brilliant job with that yeah chazelle interpreted visually these things that singer had had added into the screenplay scattered little details that mm-hmm. there's a mention later on in in another scene where there's a bug that's just within oh, within yeah. the spaceship as well and that that kind of thing it, it it's a fly on screen though those things are just mentioned in the screenplay and just grounds us in the reality but this isn't sci-fi exactly it's it's no. reality yeah yeah no it never felt like a science fiction film mm-hmm. it it did feel like a lot of the shots are, are definitely inspired by greats like 2001, Space Odyssey, and yeah. and other films of that nature. But which, funnily enough, came out the year before the moon landing, mm-hmm. yeah. which I thought was, I don't know, I thought that came out after And it's the 50 moon years old now. Yeah. That's crazy. That's, that's crazy. Yeah. All right. Well, we have the, the Gemini 8 mission. The, there is a lot of tension. It, there was a triumphant uh-huh. moment. Yeah. There's, and then it all goes wrong, and the the spin goes out of control. But I think the real focus of the drama is actually on what's happening down on Earth with Janet. Mm-hmm. Janet's radio connection is cut, as they fear what might happen if she finds out what's going on, and the press is there. Yeah. But we learn something about Janet's character and the fact she goes straight to NASA to go mm-hmm. and give them a a piece of her mind that was a great scene for her because we really get to see the very strong steely side of her character which um doesn't always come across in the film because there's a lot of very small moments for her and she's going through her mourning or she's going through her worries but uh reading the book it was very clear to me that this was a very strong woman you Mm -hmm. know and she was a very lively social outgoing woman in a way she was kind of the yang to you know neil's ying like it really did feel like that reading the biography and so i think they made the perfect balance uh but this is the one scene where i was very happy to see that side of her come out so she yeah so she was listening to the black box and she has a press outside so yeah she goes to nasa and demands that they turn it back on 
uh, or, or you know, she threatens to to tell the press what's going on. So she uses the press as her weapon. Yeah, she has a great line there where she says, "You're a bunch of boys making models out of balsa wood, and you don't have anything under control." Yeah, yeah that's a great line. Yeah, and she delivers it so well. Mm-hmm. I didn't know she was British. Yeah, I'm not very. Yeah. I'm never. I'm not very familiar with the actress, so. Um, she did a great job. Yeah, I saw, I saw a video of her at one of the... Uh, it was kind of like a behind-the-scenes thing. Yeah. And they're, they're showing her some some real NASA rockets, and she's like, oh, my gosh, they're so large. <laughs> like, she's, <laughs> she's exceptionally British. She is. Yeah. I saw some behind the, the You s- wouldn't believe it, but no, her, yeah. her portrayal of a 1960s American woman from the Midwest, like, her accent is spot on. But, no, yeah. she was great. She was yeah. great. I... I hadn't seen her in anything before, and then I saw the behind-the-scenes stuff, and mm-hmm. I was like, oh, wow, she's really British. Yeah, so moving on. What we get next, as we have this, this swing from side to side, really, mm-hmm. throughout much of the story, we go space, Earth, space, Earth, space, Earth, or, or at least NASA, and then home, NASA and home. Right. Whichever right. way you want to look at it, uh, mm-hmm. there's definitely... Neil's career and bulk of the action parts of it and then there's the domestic life and the bulk of the drama going Mm -hmm. on and it really swings between both of them so after a big well the longest scene I think there is in the whole film until the the moon landing is this Gemini 8 part of it correct yeah so then as we would expect we go back to the domestic world for a bit we've got Janet talking to Pat and them sharing their experiences and also counting themselves lucky to really have the husbands that they do, which uh, is a nice thing to see them reflecting on. Despite all of the hardships, they they do have these noble guys as as husbands who they could have ended up with worse, as as Pat remarks that like that, a dentist, yeah, that, <laughs> that her friend who has the dentist husband wishes she wasn't married to him, right. and that they have this miserable home life, yeah, and it's not because of his career, it's because of the person, right? And it just ties into this sense of nobility that's associated with Neil Armstrong, mm. that 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 comes across at home as well. He he's not going to be the kind of guy who strikes his wife or anything in, in which was obviously a significant problem in the in the past in the 60s and before oh, yeah. you know um, he, he's definitely someone who respects her as an equal and and really the the unbalance in their home life is more to do with this loss that they both can't seem to confront and work through together yeah no and we don't get any sort of overtly dramatic scenes between the two of them of plates being uh you know yeah, not not in the sense that you don't love me enough kind of thing. Yeah, it's more to do with if she thinks he's stepping out of line with his actions and his behavior, she she does raise her voice as we see later on. But right, but it never gets into this realm of melodrama. It mm-hmm. it always just kind of is anchored with just like the conflict between the two of them. So yeah, no, there's I think it's just about the right amount of drama I think for them because otherwise they would feel like they're just trying to overly enhance what the actual story is i think and i'm I'm just reflecting on this now but the two scenes we really have seen of neil actually doing anything in in aircraft or spacecraft up until this point they go wrong Mm -hmm. and in reality his flight record is just 
it's like perfect scores most of the time when he's like his career um uh sorry his service in the korean war that kind of stuff right. like his his flight uh ability his flying abilities were exceptional he and, loved flying yeah. and it, yeah. it clearly shows from the fact he's he learned when he was really young yeah. and seems to have been exceptionally talented but had a lot of experience and then did all of the education on the side so he knew what he was dealing with he knew the angles he knew mm. all of the resistance everything he he was able to do these calculations as he was working as well so yeah no and he um so but obviously in a film you can't have all the perfect flights you know you gotta yeah, add the, the, the drama in there in it's adding sense. the drama in and also it but it's just interesting that yeah one could go away from this thinking, well, why do they keep letting this guy go back up? You know, like he, he keeps messing up. But then it's established that it's his determination. In in the screenplay, it's his determination that's getting him him through this. When he's in that, the multi-axis trainer being spun around, the first thing he says when he comes to is, let's go again. That's, yeah. that's what makes us think that even if he messes up, he's going to keep going until he gets it right. Yeah, he definitely has this sort of... Um ambition within himself to to achieve his goals and to just kind of yeah like you said earlier there's this resiliency that he has of um probably fueled by i mean this is me reading into it but fueled by that great loss i think when you experience a loss like that anything else probably seems doable mm -hmm. i'm going through this and I, I managed to go through that and i'm not being torn apart i'm not falling apart because of this loss, I'm actually succeeding in doing this. So I think there's got to be a sort of um, momentum there for him to just keep going forward and pushing and pushing. Um, they never really go into that in the film, but that's sort of my takeaway for that. Shortly after this, Ed reveals that he's going to be the first man to go to the moon. Mm -hmm. So that gets set up as well. Because uh, Neil and Dave, I think it is, are kind of recovering from mm -hmm. the post-Gemini nightmare. Mm -hmm. But Ed has this this really great news, and they, they congratulate him and everything, but that really sets us up for... That sets us up for the more climactic moments of, of the screenplay. There is a nice scene where Neil and Ed go for a walk, mm -hmm. and you've got this this nice Texas evening. The You can hear the, the crickets chirping and everything, and again this immersiveness that's constant throughout the film you feel like you're accompanying these two guys on on this walk together mm. and that's the first time neil even mentions karen mm -hmm. to anyone it seems in in the story and uh ed you can see in the way that it's written and in the way the actors portrayed it that they instantly recognize this moment just him mentioning it is significant yeah and that it's not going to be this heartfelt discussion, heartfelt conversation, but it means something. You can that bond is strong between Ed and, and Neil at that point as as we then jump forward to uh nineteen sixty seven. Yeah, I think I don't know if it's up to this point where uh I think Janet expresses that he never talks about her. Yeah, that's when they uh is that that's when they write when she has to drive home because with he them leaves, from right? Elliot's funeral. Elliot, yeah. yeah. So this was before. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's set up that he never talks about it. So then, uh, setting that up, and now we're here. It, there's a payoff. So the 1967 part of it, 
these two guys are, are split up. Neil goes to the White House to schmooze with Singer actually describes him as the unctuous politicos in, in the screenplay, which I thought was a <laughs> fantastic way of putting it. Uh, just having to go to these these yeah. events uh, where everyone's just being polite to each other, but really they've all got their agendas. And right. these, a lot of the politicians don't want to even support the space program. And mm -hmm. it is a hard sell, and it's something that obviously is coming up in in every generation since it's been a possibility mm -hmm. it's why would we spend money on this when there's needy people back home back on earth a uh, very valid point yeah it's a really valid point the screenplay definitely alludes to it and mm -hmm. the protests and mm -hmm. and the concerns of the politicians at the time right and it's the answer to the question is the one given by neil early on in the screenplay which is we don't know what we're going to find up there, but we might get a new perspective. Mm -hmm. And there, that is a constant rebuttal to the protests all the way through, is that it might be that we need to find perspective. And that definitely doesn't mean that that perspective should be that the hungry should go hungry or anything like this. Well, the perspective that the astronauts get, and this is, is definitely mentioned in Hansen's book as well, is that when you get up there, you don't see any borders. When you mm. get up there, all of the problems on Earth seem insignificant. Mm -hmm. That they say they can't see any man-made structures from, from space, despite the common belief that you can see the Great Wall of China, that right. the astronauts didn't see any man-made structure from up there. Right. It was almost as if humanity... Wasn't even there. Wasn't even there. Yeah. And that's the kind of perspective that they're referring to. It's right. it's a sense of world unity that you can only get by stepping out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, taking a picture of Earth from the moon, that right. kind of thing. Yeah, that you can see it as this unified whole, as opposed to mm. this this territory that needs to be marked off and borders need to be built and all this kind of stuff. So that's how that can tie into the positive aspects of of funding this kind of research funding mm. a space program there was an agreement as well that space would never be militarized so mm. that's also i believe it's still in effect it offers this new start to humanity in the sense that if it's done correctly mm. and it probably won't be but if it was done correctly the idea is that space would be a joint endeavor yeah and it, and it was very much with yeah. that that um with that attitude of going up there in peace, that was always very much part mm -hmm. of uh, the agenda. Everything that was being talked about down here was to uh, become in peace. Mm -hmm. It was never about like the U.S. claiming the moon or anything like that, or the moon yeah. now belongs to a certain country. There is the rivalry between the USSR and America. So it's always been slightly politicized, but it's yeah. just the sense that just yeah, who the, gets there first? The individuals and the the use of space is meant to be a joint endeavor. Yeah, and it, and it's more of that was just more of like a marathon of like a race. It it wasn't about whoever wins claims it. No, and the Soviets aren't going to shoot down Apollo eleven just because it might make it to the moon before they do. Like, no, that, it's not that kind of no, contest. No, it was just about bragging rights, really. It wasn't about winning that thing at the end, like a physical, tangible thing. It was more about, yeah, we were the first ones to do this or whatever. 
Um, and I think JFK also in his speech alluded to the same sentiment of when he asked about why go to the moon, you know, why climb the highest mountain? Um, you know, these are things that, again, it's about finding stuff within ourselves as a humanity that can connect us all, that can unite us, because essentially that's what it did. It yeah, connected, pushing, pushing us far beyond yeah. what we thought we were capable of. And so many benefits that we have nowadays, the show is going out on the internet and there's satellites up in space that contribute to to that and GPS and everything like that, you know. Yeah, and it did unite the people. Mm-hmm. It did unite, of you know, all the countries and all the citizens and they were all there watching the TVs or listening to the radio. I mean, it was the entire world watching this singular event. So there was a unification there, which is pretty spectacular if you think about it. Everyone's attention on one thing mm-hmm. in real time. Like That's pretty powerful. Yeah, and not because it was like 9-11 or something that everyone's attention was on it for the because something tragic had happened. It yeah. was because there was this significant moment in human history. Exactly. That just couldn't have a parallel. Even even though people made parallels between Columbus and what the Europeans believed was their discovery of the Americas at the time, that news didn't spread in real time. People weren't watching it as it unfolded. Right. News came back months later. Mm-hmm. And then spread, disseminated, and was filled with with rumor for 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 years and years afterwards because yeah. it was an abstract event that took place elsewhere. Whereas with the moon landing, television had been invented by this point. Yeah. So everyone was able to watch it unfold. Yeah, which now makes me wonder what the next unifying thing would be, like next achievement. Like what what would be the equivalent of that? Mm. In, it's it's in, a you need a Kennedy like determination to to pick some some goal and aim yeah, for it because it is so. an abstract goal and it's yeah. it's a a big part of this is that it's it is completely irrelevant mm-hmm. and yet it seems to convey some meaning for us especially as a society well as a as a species as humanity as a species we have gone from being completely earthbound and believing earth is the center of the universe and that the moon and the sun rotate around earth and that all of this is some sort of complex design just for for us on earth Mm. and then breaking those boundaries through astronomy and and science and then taking a concept that is completely inconceivable to people in the medieval period and the renaissance of going to the moon and then it just got done and it was yeah. And now it's a fact. Yeah, and it's pretty incredible. Yeah. Anyway, back to the screenplay. Um, yes. <clears throat> this is a really significant moment of the screenplay to work through is uh, the Apollo 1 test fire, mm-hmm. which really tragic event. A significant part of uh, Hansen's book is dedicated to it as well. Mm-hmm. And he mentions that when the fire broke out, the astronauts probably were aware of of it for a few seconds that there were recordings or communications that came through that they heard that they were aware there was a fire there and then it was over i think it's drawn out a little bit in the in the film version yeah and even then it wasn't that it's not that long no so it was it was fairly quick 
but then again, this is pretty impactful because this happens to a character that we've been seeing for a while now. So th this one's a little bit more impactful than Elliot's does because we've spent a little more time with him and we've gone to uh, see the bond between you know Janet and Pat. So there's a lot more of an emotional uh, connection here. And even me reading the book, it was it was very, um, yeah, it sucks, you know, because mm -hmm. you have these families who are going through this terrible tragedy and especially because of the promise of what he was going to do, which is one of the tragic aspects of it. He was supposed to be the first man on the moon. And then this is just that just adds to the overall tragedy and just sort of the consequences, you know, these they landed on the moon, but all these things had to happen in mm -hmm. order for that to happen. So I think it wasn't just a sort of uh, just a, an accomplishment without any sacrifice. Mm -hmm. And I think that just adds more weight to the, the significance of that victory of landing on the moon because of everything that came before. And actually, that was one of the things that I really admired about Neil was that he acknowledged that when he was um, expressing his gratitude you know, back to the space station of thanking of everyone who built these structures and everything that came before everyone. So he was very aware of that, of that stuff, of everything that came before. It's dramatized very well. Mm -hmm. We have Neil at the White House and that scene was rewritten specifically that initially they wanted Neil losing it, wanted him to break down when he hears the news and when they consulted family about it. And I think they, they consulted Hanson a lot on, on the screenplay. And the response was simply he wouldn't have done that. He wouldn't have he wouldn't have banged the table and cried. And so it, it got transformed into this him clutching the glass in his hand so hard that it cracks and it's cuts so himself. effective. Yeah. So effective. Um, and it worked. I mean I'm so glad they made that change, but mm -hmm. it's it's even better to know that it was done with the intention of making the character more true to life. And then, and I think this is one of the very few biopics where everything can sort of stand to fact. Mm -hmm. You know, nothing was uh, diverted from reality too much. So I think that was, that's great for the filmmakers to do that because sometimes I, I struggle with that when I watch a film of based on someone. It's like, well... I get why you changed that to make a better film, but by doing that, are you dishonoring this person? So there's always this sort of fine line. So I appreciate the fact that they stuck to the facts mostly. Yeah. Which is um, really great. This is, it's something that I'm considering a lot in, in the screenplay I'm writing now as well. And what I think what you find is this, that what you might be able to come up with, with your imagination, that's, that's great. Use it for, a fictional screenplay mm -hmm. use use those moments in another story but the more you dig into the research you're doing the more you dig into the the recorded lives of the people that took part in it you'll you'll discover these scenes that you never knew were there mm. and they'll be just as fascinating and i think mm. this is a perfect example of that of trying to make the film more true to life created a moment of such power it just wouldn't have come across as authentic otherwise and it and it wouldn't have hit us in the same way as an audience less is more yeah uh and and because you don't even hear the the glass break or anything it's just a very simple just 
shocked because even he probably wasn't aware that he had done that, which adds to your emotional reaction to it because then you understand sort of where he is mentally and emotionally. So, yeah, no, that worked really well. Yeah, and at this point, the story uh, jumps forward another year to 68. Neil is using one of those lunar... Oh, those were so cool, yeah. Yeah, it's a lunar landing test yeah. vehicle of some kind, which is just this assembly of pipes and cables, and it, it's extremely dangerous. He he ends up having to eject out of it, mm-hmm. crashes. Uh, Janet is a bit ups- unsettled by this when he comes home with his, his oh, yeah. face uh, grazed. It does lead to an interesting quote for the character of Neil who says to one of his commanders, we need to fail down here so we don't fail mm. up there. I think that really sets up the stakes for now we've seen the Apollo 1 test fire. We've seen what happened with Gemini 8 and we know that the moon landing is going to be the next big thing for these characters. It's really set up those stakes. Yeah, no, that was great. And uh, I think that's that's true to anyone who is involved in a field of any kind where you're constantly testing things out for a performance or for to succeed in anything. I think that's a great great quote for for anyone to take. I can't remember if it was. Um, I, I wish I'd looked it up now, but that book is very long. But I can't remember if it was the Navy pilots for the Korean War or the astronauts that he said had a 25 percent mortality rate. And you compare that to any, basically any occupation you can think of today, then no one, a 25% mortality rate is. Mm. It's, it's unfathomable how someone deals with the kind of stress of knowing that that's what their job will entail. And you think of these, there were many more Neil Armstrongs in a sense, that Ed White is, is one of them, the, these people who mm. had tried and had dedicated so much of their life to becoming who they were going to be and then being struck down in the middle of that life yeah. uh, just because of an accident or or something. The Apollo 1 in particular was avoidable, but it also led to much stricter safety protocols going forward. Of course, at the time, it's it's always going to be one of those questions of why wasn't this thought about before? But mm. It happened, and as a result, it meant that they didn't allow test craft to be so oxygenated or that kind of stuff. So, you know, it it probably might have saved more lives. or right. you, There's just no way of measuring it, right? But yeah. it's, it's shocking to think of how they, they had to deal with the stress. That, yeah, no, the risk being so high, definitely. And, and we get the sense that Neil is being removed from these tests when he says that, that quote about failing. They don't really want to risk him anymore. It's, mm. it's not worth it. They need him to be going up. Yeah. Yeah. After that, we we really jump forward to 1969. We do see a bit of the NASA protests that we alluded to earlier, but when we move forward to 1969, we, we get that press conference. Mm-hmm. That was really interesting to read about in the book. Um, Norman Mailer was there and wrote a big article about uh neil armstrong afterwards which i recommend people check out because you get one of the the main journalists slash novelists of the time really considering what it meant what what the moon landing meant what the person of neil armstrong meant 
he didn't I don't believe he got to meet Neil or ask him a question directly so he he kind of went back home and ruminated on on the experience of mm. having seen this guy and what this guy represented and obviously was very surprised by his composure and his his reluctance to answer questions and really didn't know what to make of him for a long time and worked that out through writing which is is always a good way of figuring out what your thoughts are right which are published now so you can read Norman Mailer's thoughts on on Neil Armstrong and he he referred to the age of Aquarius I think in in mm. the writing and came up in the book briefly what this new age of Aquarius was going to be and interesting who these men were going to be that define the age and now we look at ourselves 50 years on as we say it kind of came to nothing it's <laughs> yeah it and was, it's a moment that's gone and going back to that press conference, I think that also kind of spotlights his character a little bit more because he never saw this as the, this was his least favorite part of the gig. He did not like doing this at all. Mm -hmm. I yep. think it, it was, I think he didn't understand that the people wanted him to be super enthusiastic as they were, to be passionate, to be emotional about the whole experience to make it a spiritual and religious thing which is kind of what people were expecting i think what they kind of wanted was more in the realm of buzz and sort of his sort of energy and enthusiasm because the way that neil responded to questions again were very to the point to the fact uh, i think one of when they asked him like what he wished he could take up there he said he just wished he would take more fuel you know, just very matter-of-factly, you know, and that's who he was. He never, he didn't try to, he didn't pretend to be anyone else, which also is a great testament to his character. He was authentic. He didn't care to try to pretend or pander to to the people, um, which I actually greatly admire that he kept true to himself, mm -hmm. even in those situations. Well, his character, in in the screenplay at least, he's he's hiding his his inner thoughts from the journalists but he's also hiding it at home and he's not confronting the reality of what's going on so this is when janet comes to him while he's saying he's packing and oh, yeah. she insists that she he talks to the boys mm -hmm. and essentially tell them what is going on say goodbye she asks him what are the chances of you not coming back he says i can't give you an exact number it's also a very mathematical way of responding to it, but she says she doesn't want a number. It's not zero, is it? Right. And that's that's really when this it dawns on him. I think of it isn't zero. Right. It, he could die, and he's about to go without saying goodbye to his kids. So that that's a very tender scene. But like it's that. interesting how he how similar Ryan Gosling plays it in in that scene as well. That he's. He's talking to his kids almost like he talked to the journalists exactly, at times. Yeah. He's, he's using the kind of vocabulary that he would use with journalists, but he's talking to the closest members of his family, the kids that look up to him as their their father. And yeah, yeah, it's it's really funny how <laughs> yeah. yeah how he how he does that. Yeah, no, he's quite the character, and again, that that reveals a little bit more about him and the patience that Janet had for him like you said earlier i think she's the one that kind of kept him grounded at least in terms of like family life and he was kind of directionless um if he didn't have her for sure 
And I, you know, they didn't really focus on the kids too much. You know, they, they could have been that temptation to make it more about the family drama and to, again, kind of delve more into the relationships between him and his wife, which we did get a lot. But I, I still feel like all these choices were very conscious of his state of mind because there must have been some distance between him and his kids because he wasn't spending so much time at home. You know, he was constantly away from home. So there wouldn't be that super intimate relationship with his kids, I think. So I think by them not going in that way and try to add a lot of like fake sentimentality, oh, it's his last day and let's make this scene really sad so that you care as the audience, blah, blah, blah. You know, again, it feels much more real and authentic to his character. Mm -hmm. The kids often seem baffled by what's actually going on. There's a scene where... Uh, Janet mentions to the younger son that that his father's going to the moon. He says, "Okay, can I go out and play?" <laughs> and um, yeah, and <laughs> and when um, when Neil says goodbye, Rick puts his hand out to say goodbye to him instead of embracing him. There, there's a handshake, so there's that sense of yeah, distance. Yeah, the Absolutely. younger the younger son does cuddle him, but the elder son, it's a handshake, and and that sense of distance. It it becomes more evident as the as the child is getting older, mm-hmm. becoming more aware of what's going on, conscious that his his father's not around so much. Right, definitely seeing him as a stranger in the home, perhaps that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And then we get the moon mission. So this is a climactic moment. It's wonderfully done. The effects, in particular, which aren't effects in a way, they're using footage from the actual from nasa from yeah they were projecting it while they were mm-hmm. filming so they in a sound stage in a sound stage so instead of using green screen they actually use the footage so it's a kind of like a big old imax screen mm-hmm. and you have the actors it's a, in i the believe set. the biggest led screen they'd ever built something like that oh wow i don't know yeah i wasn't aware of that that's crazy that's I mean, it's just, uh, it adds just more authenticity, not just for us, but for the actors. You know, mm-hmm. I think them being there and watching all this, it could only elicit the emotions one would have in that situation, obviously. And one of the wonderful things we get from using those screens is you get the reflections in, in yeah. the eyes yeah. of the actors. And there's a lot of close-up, mm-hmm. uh, a lot of close-ups on, on uh, Neil, Ryan, and... And there's like multiple types of close-ups I noticed. There's like a where you see most of the face and then when you're just like in the eyes and then there's one with the helmet, but it's always like very close on him. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm i so glad they decided to go that way instead of green screen. And yeah. I think it made a big difference. And yeah, that whole last, I think it's, um, it's about 35, 40 minutes mm-hmm. from the launch and it doesn't feel like that long like it's just such a immersive journey and it's it never really cuts back to earth too much you're just really on that journey and the music which we haven't mentioned before is just oh yeah so phenomenal justin Hurwitz, who yeah. also had composed the the scores for la la land and whiplash mm-hmm. returns here with this phenomenal score which it's- Brilliant. It's worth listening to on its own. Oh yeah, without the film, just 
Side note, I yeah. was I heard how good it was, and I listened to that score before I even saw the film, like months before. Mm-hmm. And um, it, and it's so different from because obviously La La Land and Whiplash have sort of a similarity in the yeah, whole the jazz, jazz thing. thing. Yeah. But this is completely different. And what he does with sounds and just, you know, classical orchestral music, but mixing it up a little bit. I mean, it's it's a it's, it's a masterpiece, in my opinion. It's a great, great score. Uh, so I think that elevates the the whole sequence of them launching. And not just that, but the way everything's edited. When he cuts to, you know, wide shots and when he cuts to reaction when he cuts to close-ups of whatever's inside the spacecraft because there's a lot of that the lighting everything just sort of is very smooth it just feels very immersive you're just in it it just attacks your senses and you're just fully there yeah this this is something that screenplays they're just the frameworks for the films and what's really going to make it phenomenal is the choices of the director, the the budget that they have available, the technical choices, mm-hmm. the photography, all of the the editing, the sound, all of these different things do come together. And it, this film has a very unique feel. It, it doesn't feel like a sci-fi movie, but it does pay homage to so many sci-fi movies. Yeah. And that's the wonderful thing about it. But it is also paying homage to to documentaries, especially older documentaries that... That kind of reflect that spirit of the '60s and all of that stuff. So right. it's it's, it's yeah. wonderfully done. I believe the film stock they used was the same film stock that they used back in the '60s, and because it does have a very '60s looking feel to it, um, cinematography wise, which I noticed, and that's carried up until space. Like even in the wide shots where you have, um, you know, the rocket kind of cutting through space, it still has that '60s looking feel to it mm-hmm. and the great thing that i liked was the, they didn't go automatically into imax when they're in space the when they cut to imax is when the they actually land on the moon and the doors open and then it turns into imax which i thought that was really brilliant there's a lot of noise as well like the grains on the footage once they get to the moon as well yeah. which again adds to that immersion yeah um, because one thing that I don't think I knew before this, and I don't think many people know, is that you, you don't see stars from from that part of of the moon. Oh, interesting. Yeah, it, there's some sort of phenomenon. It, some, it was called cislunar something or other, but essentially you don't see the stars. Oh, interesting, okay. Possibly because of the, the glow of the Earth? Or Probably. Something. Yeah, because yeah, it's really close to it, so it must mm-hmm. feel... No, I can see that. And I think the other thing that I really liked was obviously with the IMAX, everything's much more crisp and much more clear, much more bright because, you know, those are like the top of the top. And um, I was watching in some of the behind the scenes with with the filmmakers is that when they spoke to all the astronauts who went up in space and who actually landed on the moon was that when they were on the moon, that was like the most clear their eyes ever felt and the most clear they ever heard. Like their senses were just so clear and that this was something that every astronaut actually attested to. Wow, that's really interesting. That was everyone's experience being on the moon was that their senses were in a way sort of awakened. So I think maybe that was probably the inspiration of having switching from normal uh, camera into the IMAX was when they actually go in 
to the moon. Because again, visually, you might have been a little more uh, tempted to use the IMAX camera for the whole launch. Because it's such a big, epic moment, and then you're going up in space. Uh, so I think that's really cool that they waited up until the moon. And then we don't go back to the IMAX when they come back to Earth. So it was just for the moon, which I thought that was that was really great. I guess we should just talk about the the moment on the moon. The moment, yes. Which, which isn't his first step, which is included. Oh, yeah, the, yeah. They didn't include the raising of the flag to... Boohoo. Well, you know, whatever controversy that was considered. They do include his famous uh, first first step for man, uh, giant leap for mankind line, mm-hmm. which I was waiting for. In the IMAX, I was just waiting for that. <laughs> I was like, why hasn't he said it yet? He's going to say it. He's gonna, like, he's going down the ladder and there's all this That's mundane funny. stuff. And it's like, he's got to say that line, right? Right. But it's interesting how he's completely overwhelmed. In the screenplay, it alludes to the years of work and sacrifice. And Elliot and Ed, it says. The enormity of what he's done almost overwhelms him. And we don't get to see his face, so we're seeing that reflection mm-hmm. on the visor, which is just wonderfully done yeah. as well. And yet we're still feeling mm-hmm. something. We know that there's something to feel mm-hmm. at this point. And the contrast is great as well with Buzz kind of just doing little <laughs> yeah. moon hops. <laughs> yeah, he's just jumping around. Yeah, But Neil goes off on his own and... Yeah. Again, this scene is meant to be something that people close to Neil Armstrong believe happened. Apparently next year they're going to release the files that say what was taken on board. Interesting. So it probably will answer it once and for all. But then again, if he did sneak the bracelet in and didn't tell anyone and didn't even declare it, that would be another thing. Mm. I'm sure they knew exactly what was going on that ship, though. I don't think they had a chance of sneaking something on. However, yeah, the the idea is that James Hansen did ask Neil Armstrong about it. He said that he didn't take it, and James Hansen thought he was lying. He he was there at the time. He he knows how Neil acted. I, how many interviews did he do with him? Something like twenty, just for the just for Quite the book. Quite a bit. It was a lot. lot of, and yeah. these aren't just like five-minute interviews. Yeah, they're like big, long interviews. Yeah. He felt that this is what happened, or at least it wouldn't be ahistorical to claim that it happened. And we get these flashbacks. And mm-hmm. he's up there, and he's he's reached this goal, and I think this goes back to what I was saying at the beginning of this episode, which is that we have this character with a want that... He can never have. He can never have. Right. Yes. Uh, so when he's up there on the moon, all he can remember is his life back on Earth. And in the past, in particular, on Earth. And that it's so heartbreaking for us. We we watch what should be the most triumphant moment in human history, mm-hmm. or one of them, and we see it as a personal tragedy. It's a really wonderful way to end that film, I think. It's a very emotional way to end it. There's a mirror image of Karen's funeral. It's the only time we see him cry is right at the beginning at Karen's funeral, and we see him cry again in this final scene. In the screenplay, it says, he's unable to control himself. The tears come freely, raining down with all the pent-up feelings. 
the first and last outburst we'll ever see. Mm. Which is a beautiful way of putting it, I think. And yeah, the the final pieces we do they do go back to Earth and we get to see them in, in their quarantine and he's he's watching the, the TV and there's you know, the memories of Kennedy and everything like that. But the ending is really that Janet comes to to see him. Mm-hmm. And they're separated by the glass. Right. And I think that's a reflection of where they've probably been for a little while. There's probably been this distance and this isolation that he probably feels and probably she feels too because of just how their lives have sort of turned out. And so I read the 145-page version and there's so much that happens after that scene. There's actually three pages worth of scenes after of... Um, after that moment so after that uh there's a whole the whole press tour that he does and the whole uh, how he's just anxious about it and actually it goes on to a very interesting ending in which it's pretty much the final beat is him realizing that he's now become this sort of larger than life figure and that nasa wasn't going to allow him to go back up into space back up on the moon because they didn't want to lose now this sort of national treasure and that is sort of something that dawns on him just as uh nixon is about to present him to the event that they're in and that's kind of what the story ends on is i believe that's an interesting ending it it takes it in a completely different direction yeah and i think the last final beat it says and now the isolation is complete and it's mm. a very bummer ending, actually. <laughs> well, that, that's a really good thing to contrast with the actual ending. Yeah. Because the way that is written, this is um, this is Neil and Janet together pressing their hands to the opposite sides of the glass. It says, And off that small ray of hope that maybe they might navigate the gulf between them, that they mm. might find a way back to each other again, we fade out. The end. Yeah, and it's beautiful. And the earlier draft that you're referring to is ending on a note of of pessimism, whereas this refers to hope, and not hope about his career, which he's already found is ultimately meaningless once he's up there on the moon. It's him and Janet. It's him and family. It's him and his place as a person in in his own world back at home that really mattered after all. It's a much more intimate ending. Mm -hmm. And again, like uh, they cut out all the stuff about the politics of the space race that was in the original draft, that was the original beginning and all this like extraneous stuff about the the press tour and how the world reacted to him and his new sort of uh, stage of his life, which is now to become this sort of icon or to live up to this sort of icon status and they stripped that away and just really made it about him and his relationship with janet at the end and in the beginning it was about him as a person him as a you know as a pilot but also how he deals with these intense circumstances and getting to know him that way so i think all these all these changes make a lot of sense and make a better film because you're just more in it as with who Neil is. And I think from a maybe producing perspective or from a studio head, you would see it as sort of like, well, 
no, we need the bigger ending. We need the crowds of people. We need to link it back to what the experience it was for us as what was happening with the moon landing. But that that would have been a disservice to how Neil viewed it. And it's his film and it's about him. And I think they did a really good, uh, they honored him with that, I think, with making it about him and sort of how he viewed it, which is a very humble perspective. So I think it makes more sense. I think this is a great note to leave it on. And the listener is going to have a lot to think about after this conversation. We don't know what our next episode is going to be. So we'll we'll release that information shortly you. after. With it. Yeah, surprise. It's been great to, to go over the three films of Damien Chazelle so far. Quite a journey. Very Quite a yeah. journey. I mean, he's evolved into... Because it's so different, this one, from what he's done before. Whiplash and La La Land have the jazz link a little bit. They're very different films. Mm-hmm. And he didn't write this one, obviously. It's not a product of his imagination or, or his own and story it's a, choices. And yeah. it's a true story. The first film was very personal to him. There was a lot of inspiration from what he went through personally. La La Land's more of a original story. And here we have him adapting something that he had no part of. And I think he's made three really excellent films. Yeah. A lot of respect for him. Cool. Okay. Let's leave it there. Cool. Thank you for listening. Please do go to our website, the21strewrite.com. That's spelled with a two and a one, the21strewrite.com. If you want to subscribe and listen to more episodes or provide any comments or feedback to us, we have a contact page on the website. Thank you again for continuing to support the show, and we'll see you in two weeks with our next episode.